Daniel chapter 7. This is an amazing chapter of Scripture, an amazing section in the chapter where Daniel gets an incredible view of the glorious return of Jesus Christ. And it's one of the most profound passages in all the book of Daniel. You follow along as I read it. Daniel chapter 7 beginning at verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking at the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. All the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. We'll be looking at these verses we read this morning in Scripture, verses 9 to 14. Before we begin our journey of this text, let's bow and look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the word and those here to partake of it today. We pray your blessing on this group of people who've gathered together to look into a great passage of Scripture. We realize, Lord, that we're up against the majesty of thyself in this prophetic moment. But help us to glean what you want us to glean from it. And we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a famous prayer which is found in the Bible that's often repeated in scriptures, much like a now I lay me down to sleep prayers repeated by children. The prayer is called the Lord's Prayer. The problem is most who recite the prayer don't actually really have an understanding as to what the prayer means or to whom it's actually referring. The fact of the matter is the Lord's Prayer is not a church-age prayer. The Lord's Prayer was not taught in any of Paul's church epistles. In fact, most of the prayers that you read in the epistles have to do with grace and growing. The Lord's Prayer was a kingdom prayer. It was a prayer that had to do with the nation Israel. It's a prayer that will be specifically prayed at a time when Israel literally needs to ask God to provide her daily bread. Just this past week in New Orleans, one person said we need food, but there are no stores where we can get it. They're all gone. Those are people who could pray to God, give us today food to eat, but that is still not the intent of what the Lord's Prayer is. During the tribulation time, the Antichrist will be persecuting Israel. Things will be very difficult for that nation if you're Jewish. Part of that prayer prays, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Presently, Jesus Christ reigns over an invisible, heavenly kingdom. Ever since ascending into heaven, Christ has been conducting invisible work. We do not physically see it. However, there's going to come a time when Jesus Christ will bring his literal, visible, physical kingdom back to earth, and that's the time when that prayer will be answered, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
The actual moment of that prayer's answer will occur at the end of the tribulation when Jesus Christ comes back in all of his glory to establish his physical kingdom on earth for Israel. And that event is described right here in Daniel. Now these verses are very important to the book of Daniel and to God's people. Because when you read through this section of the book of Daniel and you see there are these beastly powers that are dominating the world, there isn't much encouraging when you see godless powers that are ruling one right after another. And if God continues to allow those godless Gentile leaders to rule, there isn't much positive about that news, about that information, unless there is an eventual end to it. What God allowed Daniel to see in this portion of Daniel was the end to it. He allowed him to see the time when the beasts are not reigning forever, but his son, the son of God, is on earth and he is reigning. And in this section of scripture, that's what Daniel's talking about. God permits his faithful people to see that ultimately evil powers will be eliminated by his judgment and there will be a righteous kingdom that will be established and that reality should comfort believers, it should encourage believers, it should also motivate believers to live righteous godly lives as they wait for that blessed moment of the end. Now I believe there are some key indicators that would indicate we're very near the end of the church age. The first indicator to me is the condition of the church. The condition of the church, frankly, is that most have a form of godliness but deny the power. There's another indicator that's very critical in Scripture. There's a rise in Arab nationalism. Just a couple of months ago, 700,000 Palestinians marched in protest against Israel as a nation. There's another indicator that we're nearing the end of the church age and about to go into that phase known as the tribulation, it's the rise in oil prices. Oil will eventually become something that only the wealthy can afford. That's predicted in scripture. God is going to revert man back to very primitive methods of travel, like foot and horse. That will happen in the tribulation. There's a fourth indicator that would suggest that we're nearing the end of the church age, about to go into the tribulation. It's the rise of predator animals. We just learned this past week that alligators and now, as last night's news reported, water moccasins are coming into those trench areas in New Orleans, in the Louisiana area, threatening people's lives. We know in the tribulation period, God is going to use predator animals to literally be used as a form of judgment. There's a fifth indicator that we're nearing the end of the church age. There's a major focus right now on Israel relinquishing her land. Just a couple of weeks ago, a Lebanese leader said, I don't want peace with Israel. And there's a sixth indicator that we're nearing the end of the church age. There is a bonding together of European powers, the likes of which has never been seen before in history. Just this past month, Russia reached an agreement with the European Union in policy pertaining to economy and security. I'm telling you, this church age is just about done. And it is a wonderful, remarkable thing to learn that God's the one who's in sovereign control of all of these events. It's comforting to know that God is in perfect control. He's directing all world events to its conclusion. It's important to realize that everything happening in the world right now, right down to the minutest detail, is providentially being controlled by God. One of the people being interviewed at the Astrodome who'd been transported from the Superdome to the Astrodome was an old, lovely black woman, and she was given a microphone, and they said, what do you think of all of this? And I loved her answer. She said, God is in control of all of this. 
and my hope is in God. I thought, wow, what a testimony. But this doctrine of the sovereignty of God also becomes a warning doctrine. It's a doctrine that warns the world that ultimately God will sovereignly win. He may permit some godless powers to rule and reign for a while. He may permit people to get away with evil for a while, but then he's going to put a stop to it. What happened in New Orleans doesn't even scratch the surface of the destruction that's described in Revelation chapter 6 to 19 during the tribulation. Eventually, God will eliminate all evil forces and he will establish his righteous eternal kingdom. And what Daniel is given here in this text is a glimpse of that. He's permitted to see that. And I cannot wait, ladies and gentlemen, until Jesus Christ reigns in righteousness on earth. What a reign it'll be. Love instead of hate. Peace instead of war. Justice instead of injustice. Truth instead of deceit and lies. Humility instead of pride. Purity instead of immorality. Stability instead of instability. And righteousness in place of evil. What a wonderful kingdom it will be. That's what Daniel got to see. Dr. John Wolverd said that there are three major facts that stand out in these verses. First, Daniel has a vision of heaven at the time of the final judgment, verses 9 to 10. Second, Daniel sees the little horn, the last ruler of the Gentiles, destroyed with his empire. And third, Daniel sees a fifth kingdom, established by the Son of Man, who comes in the clouds of heaven and establishes an everlasting kingdom. Now, there are three parts that I want to show you to what Daniel sees. First of all, Daniel sees a time when thrones are set up. Verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up. One writer Dr. Donald Campbell said this is the only verse in the Bible where God the Father is described in human terms. Now we immediately notice that the first use of the noun throne is plural, but later you'll notice the Ancient of Days took his seat and he took his seat upon his throne and that is singular. So there is a separation between thrones, plural, that begins the verse, and the throne of the Ancient of Days. It seems to me that the reason for this difference is God does share his kingdom with people, but he's still God. And his throne is still high and holy. And his throne is separate from all others in majestic holiness. The thrones, plural, refers to multiple thrones that are established by God, which will one day reign over all the world. It's unclear as to just exactly where those thrones are and what they are, but we certainly know that this is speaking of a time when God will be ruling over all kingdoms in existence, whether it be angelic, human, or earthly thrones. We also know from church teaching truth from the pen of the Apostle Paul that believers are promised that we'll share in God's reign. Paul says if we suffer with him, we'll also reign with him. Paul also teaches that we will share in the judgment of angels, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We also know that Jesus Christ in Revelation specifically promised church-age believers that they would share when he had his kingly reign. That's what Daniel is seeing here. He's getting the privilege of seeing all of that set up. And it's thrilling to think about the fact that the Ancient of Days authorized kingdom assignments to humans like us. It's a thrilling thing to think about the fact that here we are, human beings, and we're going to be able to share in this magnificent, righteous kingdom in which Jesus Christ reigns supreme. Now Daniel saw the time when God was starting the process of reigning everywhere. And if we connect that to the book of Revelation, this moment occurs when Christ comes back in the clouds, in all of his glory, at the end of the tribulation period to establish his millennial kingdom. And may I suggest to you that if you want to share in honor 
in the reign of Jesus Christ than as a believer be faithful to him now. The fact that Jesus Christ could soon come back should prompt you to turn from sin and evil and turn to doing God's will, and you'll reign with him. Now the second part is the vision let Daniel see the Ancient of Days taking his throne and seat. Verse 9 to 12, you get this description of the Ancient of Days. That title, Ancient of Days, is only used in this chapter. It's used in verse 9, 13, and 22. If we look at it in its context, we determine that this is a reference to God the Father. As Dr. Leon Wood observed, this is a finite representation of eternality. What's described here is the eternality of God the Father. Now you'll notice that the Ancient of Days took his seat on the throne. The Ancient of Days takes his throne, which would indicate he's a real person, and by virtue of the fact he's taking his seat on the throne, it indicates also he really is going to judge. There will come a moment when God will really judge. We also notice that as Daniel saw this, the Ancient of Days had some visible human characteristics, which obviously enabled him to sit on that throne. First of all, there are five descriptions we get of him. We get a description of his appearance. You'll notice what the text says. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His vesture was like white snow, his hair like pure wool. There's another similar description given concerning God, concerning Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1. And that has caused some people to think that perhaps this is a reference to Jesus Christ. This is Jesus Christ. However, since the Son of Man goes up to the Ancient of Days and is presented with this kingdom that you'll see in just a moment, it's better to view that this similarity is a similarity of deity. In other words, all members of the Godhead have this similarity. When Christ comes, he comes with the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now the imagery of the clothing like white snow and hair like pure wool seems to be referenced to total purity and total maturity. There's absolutely no question that the white snow imagery is often used in Scripture relating to the righteousness of God. This imagery informs us that there is total majestic holiness and righteousness which exists at the throne of God. So you have God the Father sitting on his throne in a position of total righteousness and total truth. That's where he is and that's who he is. And any who have ever had to make a judgment... Any who've ever been in a position where you've had to make judgment decisions you wish you didn't have to make, you wish at times you could get direct messages from God where he would tell you exactly what judgment call to make. This is a time when God's going to do that. He will give direct judgment right out of his throne. Now the second description, we get a description of his throne. You'll notice the description of his throne in verse 9. There are four observations we want to make. First of all, his throne was ablaze with flames. Secondly, his throne wheels are burning with fire. And thirdly, before him and coming out from him is a river of fire. Now I want you to notice the emphasis here on fire before the throne of God because that is repeated for that very reason. This perfectly coincides with every other glimpse we get of God's throne. For example, in Psalm 97, it is revealed that the throne of God is a place of righteousness and justice and is surrounded by fire. And fire speaks of judgment. All who face God will face judgment. For a non-believer, the ultimate destiny will be the lake of fire. For the believer, it will be an analysis of works that will be checked and challenged and purified so as by fire. Now just this past week, I saw a man on the news who was in New Orleans say, This is hell. Oh no, it isn't. 
No, that's not hell. That isn't even close to what hell is. A place where you burn forever and ever in fire. And when you look at the description here of the throne of God, you realize that that is something that is part of God, judgment by fire. The fourth observation is thousands upon thousands are attending him. Now let me tell you what's exciting here. Daniel is catapulted into the future. He's looking at a time when the Son of Man is going to be given a kingdom. So Daniel, think about this, is seeing us at this scene. You're there if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Daniel is looking at you. He's looking at masses, myriads and myriads of angelic hosts and people that are before this throne. Daniel is launched into the future. And there we are if we're a believer in Jesus Christ. The third description is we get a description of what's happening at the throne in verse 10. Myriads upon myriads are standing before him for judgment. Now this is the scene that kicks off the tribulation. And I believe, ladies and gentlemen, we're very near this scene. The second thing I want you to notice is the court is sitting in session and the court sat. And the third thing I want you to notice at the end of verse 10, the court is judging from the books. The books were open. There are three key books you need to know about in Scripture that have to do with divine judgment that are there at the throne of God. Three key books that you want to be aware of. First of all, there are the condemnatory works books that have a record of every evil deed and every sin that a person has committed, and those works books actually store up wrath, according to Paul. Every time a person sins... I don't care how young they are or how old they are. Every time they've ever sinned against God by word, by speech, or by action, that has gone on their record in those works books. And if someone gets before God and wants to be judged on the basis of their works, God says, fine, let's call up the works books and let's see the story of your life. And every mouth will be shut. Because all will seem to be guilty and condemned before the Lord. So you've got the works books there. Secondly, we know from Revelation, there's the book of life. Now, the book of life records all the names, not works. It records all the names of those who have believed on Christ. You see, once you believe on Jesus Christ and you cast all of your faith in him to be your savior, your name is washed out by the blood of the lamb of that condemnatory works books list. Until you come to faith in Jesus Christ, your name's on file in the works books. And every time you've ever blown it, it's there. But the moment you believe on Jesus Christ, your name is washed out of there by the blood of the Lamb. The third book that you need to know about is the reward works books, which record all things that are done for God for those who are in the book of life. According to Malachi, there's a record kept of those who did things for the Lord after they were believers. Now, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your faithfulness is on record, and that's what God wants his people to know. Now, what Daniel is permitted to see here is he's permitted to see the throne of God and the Ancient of Days, and he's permitted to see the works books that are open. And if we take all of these things into consideration, what is described here is a judgment of the nations. This is the same judgment that is found in Matthew 25, which occurs when Christ comes in all of his glory. This judgment of the nations will occur just prior to him establishing his kingdom here on earth. And may I ask you a question before we move on? Are you in the Lamb's book of life? Are you in the book of life? Now, you don't get there by your works. 
You don't get there by your promises to God that you're going to be good. You don't get there by your morality, by church membership, or by religion. You get in the Lamb's book of life by faith. That's the only way in. And if you are not in that book, you need to understand something. You're going to face this scene, and you'll be judged and condemned. The fourth description is we get a description of the judgment he pronounces on the beast, verse 11. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Prior to this scene, all political powers were eliminated by another military conquest. In other words, the Babylonians were taken over by the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians were taken over by Greece. Greece was taken over by Rome. But this beast is not taken over by another military conquest. This beast is eliminated by divine judgment. Now there have been those in the course of interpreting this passage of Scripture who have speculated that this horn being discussed here in verse 11 is somebody from past history, but that cannot be. Because there's no place in past history where there's been a toppling of a world leader prior to the establishment of God's righteous kingdom on earth. What is described here by this little horn is a futuristic beast who's going to rise up, who will be a political leader, who is none other than the Antichrist. Now this Antichrist is going to be graphically described in chapter 11. But this Antichrist, I believe, is alive right now. We do not know exactly who this leader is yet, but he will surface shortly because after the rapture of the church, he's going to come to surface And when Christ comes, he's going to be in the process of shooting off his mouth in proud arrogance. Now I want you to notice what happens to this beast. This beast, the Antichrist, is physically thrown into the lake and fire, and it is specifically said he was thrown body and soul. That's what's brought out. His body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Now most people who go to hell, go to hell soul only. When they die, their body stays here, they're absent from their body, and then they're in a place of torment that we would call hell, not the Antichrist. The Antichrist is thrown body and all into this place. This occurs in Revelation 19.20. I would quickly have you turn over there and look at that text, if you would, please. The last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19. Notice verse 20, this coincides specifically with what is taught here in Revelation 19, verse 20. And here's what we read. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. This text in Daniel is seeing that very moment when Christ has come in all of his glory as King of kings and Lord of lords. And that event occurs just before Jesus Christ establishes his kingdom on earth and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is a kingdom in which he will reign for 1,000 years. Now the fifth description is we get a description of what he permits to happen to the rest of the beast. Verse 12, as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them. Daniel saw the rest of the beast were removed, but they continued to be allowed to exist for an appointed period of time. Apparently the rest of the ten-horned beastly powers 
are permitted to exist for a short time after the destruction of the Antichrist. In other words, there will be a short gap of time that will transpire between the removal of the Antichrist and ultimately the removal of all these other powers. We know that during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, that's where Christ will reign a thousand years. He'll fulfill all those wonderful promises he made to the nation Israel. She'll be esteemed as the nation of God. Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. During that time, God will permit other nations to exist who will not be under the influence of Satan. He will permit Gentile nations to exist during the millennium, after which time they will be destroyed. The third part of the vision is Daniel saw the victory of the Son of Man. Verses 13 to 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. Thomas Robinson said, here is the most glorious vision in the book of Daniel, one of the most glorious in all of the Bible. When Jesus Christ comes to reign, the whole world's structure is going to change. You better believe that when Jesus Christ takes control of this world, all the nations will be raging and he will break them with a rod of iron. Now the other kingdoms are presented as being beastly, but not this kingdom. This kingdom is a righteous kingdom. It's godly and manly. And that's why you have the term son of man. It is a reference to Jesus Christ. Now sometimes Christ uses the term son of God to refer to his deity side and son of man to refer to his humanity side. But Christ uses this term in reference to himself and specifically... He uses this term as to referring to the same person Daniel saw. This is a term that he picks up on when he was here physically on earth, and he refers back to the divine person that Daniel saw right here in this vision. In fact, Christ used this term pertaining to himself some 30 times in the book of Matthew, where he presents himself as king of the Jews. He uses it some 15 times in Mark, 25 times in Luke, and 12 times in John. It's a title that he often connects to biblical prophecy. And what this title, Son of Man, refers to is a person who's both human and divine, who comes out of the sky to reign, who takes over the rule of the whole world. What this means is Jesus Christ is coming back not just as some emanation of some holy being, he's coming back as the God-man, he's going to literally reign as universal king. And that's what Daniel sees. Now contextually, this Son of Man goes up to the Ancient of Days, and he's given dominion, according to the end of verse 13. He is given dominion over the whole world. He is given an everlasting kingdom. So what this title means is he's coming as a man, but not just as a man. He's coming as the God-man. And there are four specific visions Daniel gets about this. First of all, he's coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus Christ told Israel the next time they see him, that's the way they're going to see him. They'll see him coming with the clouds of heaven. This is the moment Daniel gets to see. It's the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now in this church, we believe in two events that are eschatological that both require Christ doing something. First of all, you have the rapture of the church. We don't refer to the rapture of the church as the second coming of Jesus Christ. The rapture of the church is referred to in the epistles as the appearing of Christ in which believers are caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air and so shall they ever be with the Lord. This occurs at the end of the church age. This is what signals to the world we're going into a new dispensation and it's the great tribulation. What is happening in the Gulf Coast is just 
Mickey Mouse compared to what will happen in the great tribulation that's described in Revelation chapter 6 to 19. Now we believe the second coming of Christ is the second time he actually puts his feet on the ground. And he steps on earth like he did the first time at his first coming. And that will occur right here. That's what Daniel is seeing. When Christ comes in the clouds and in glory to put his feet on the ground. And he will reign as the God-man. He'll come in the clouds of heaven. This is a reference to the glory of God coming in all of the glory of God. There's clearly a key moment that's described by Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, eschatological moment. Jesus says, I will come in the clouds and that's when you're going to see me again. And all Israel and the whole world will look to the sky and see me. Oftentimes this is used as reference to deity. And let's face it, how many people will this world ever see coming with the clouds? I mean, you might see some parachuter jump out of a plane and you happen to look up in the sky and see them coming down in a parachute, but there's only one that they're going to look up in the sky and see come gloriously in all the clouds. Secondly, the Son of Man was presented to the Ancient of Days. The text says in verse 13, he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now keep this in mind. At the throne of God is all this fire. Nobody can walk through that fire to get to the Ancient of Days. God the Father sets aside and sets separate in total majestic holiness. There's none of us worthy enough to walk up to that throne. But the Son of Man is worthy to approach the Ancient of Days. This is a high, holy, heavenly scene. He's able to go to the throne of God. He's able to go to the Ancient of Days. He's the only one who's worthy to approach God the Father, God the Lamb. No human is worthy to approach the Ancient of Days. And the purpose of this approach is clearly predicted in Psalm because Psalms teach us in chapter 2 that he's going to receive nations from the Father. Ask of me what I shall give you and I'll give you the nations. And this is that moment. What a great glorious moment this is going to be. And if you're a believer, you'll be there to see this. And that's the moment when we will break out in what we're going to sing in just a moment. Words in Revelation, put the music by Don Wurtzen. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. It'll be a dramatic moment in the history of the world when we will see the Son of Man walk up to the Ancient of Days and be given the kingdom. Now the third vision is the Son of Man was given divine dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Verse 14, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. This is the glory of God the Father. And it's transferred in this marvelous public scene to God the Son. Do you remember when Jesus was here on earth, he said to people, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Most people didn't believe him. In fact, he was about to be stoned for that testimony. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This will be a moment when people will physically see it. This will be a moment when actually they will literally see he has the glory of the Father. If you see him, you do see the Father. This is a kingly coronation in which the Ancient of Days turns over all power publicly, visibly, for people to see. And during that time, all peoples and nations, all languages will serve Jesus Christ. Something Christ predicted would happen. All nations will be gathered before him. All nations will bow before him. And the emphasis here is on his political reign during the millennium. God reigning over all people on the earth through the person known as the Son of Man. And when it says he was given dominion, 
It refers to the fact that he was given all ruling authority. When it says that he was given glory, it refers to the fact that he has the divine glory of God. And when it says he was given the kingdom, it refers to he's reigning over all organized government on earth. He's given absolute rule on earth. And what a wonderful rule it will be. It'll be a reign over the whole world. All peoples, all nations, all languages. It will be a reign of absolute power and authority. He will slay the wicked by his judgment. His reign will be absolute. It will not be a democracy. It will be a theocracy. And his reign will be in righteousness and justice. Clearly predicted in scripture. What a wonderful world it will be. No coloring of truth. No more murder, no more rape, no more robbery, no more serial killers. It'll be a reign of total righteousness when Christ comes. And carefully notice, the kingdom comes when the king comes. We don't make this happen. It's God who makes this happen. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That moment will occur when Christ comes in all of his glory at the end of the tribulation. And the fourth vision is the Son of Man will reign forever. Verse 14 says that his kingdom will not be destroyed. Any political leadership at any time in history has been at best temporal, but not Christ. Christ's reign will be eternal. And once he comes and sets his feet on this earth again, he will reign forever. There will be some interesting things that will happen in the aftermath of that. There will be a thousand-year millennial reign. At the end of that reign, he'll turn this kingdom over to his father for a short time. He'll present that kingdom to the father. There'll be the unleashing of Satan for a while. There'll be a great white throne judgment that will occur of all unbelievers of all ages. And then there'll be a creation of a new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. But once Christ comes back a second time and puts his feet on the earth. His reign is forever. Now why did Daniel reveal this? Well, first of all, because Daniel wanted Israel to know that even though they were being dominated by the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians, that there would come a day in which there would be victory. That they would actually have what they were entitled to that God was in control. And those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, for them the future is bright. Now I want to show you, as I conclude this today, something from the book of Revelation. So I'd like you to go to chapter 22. It's the last chapter of the Bible. In Revelation 22, John is concluding prophecy, which is very similar to that of Daniel's. And he says in verse 7, quoting the words of Jesus, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. He repeats it again, verse 12. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe Christ is quickly coming. Look at this world and what is happening. You're beginning to see the stage of history being set for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice one verse in the middle of that Revelation 22 text. It's in verse 11. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who's filthy still be filthy, 
And let the one who's righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who's holy still keep himself holy. What that tells us is this. When Christ comes quickly, it'll be too late to change. Whatever state you're in, when Christ comes quickly, that's the state you're going to face him in. If you're in a state of being filthy, you're going to face him filthy. If you're in a state of doing wrong, that's the way you're going to face him. But if you're in a state of being righteous, you're going to face him in that state as well. Which is it for you today? The Lord is coming. He's coming soon. Please do not leave here this week without getting your life right with him. May we pray. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes, it'll be too late to change. Time for change is now. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, I want you to be very clear on what you must do to get out of the works books and get into the book of life. You get out of the works books by believing in Jesus Christ. You can't get out of there by works. If you've never acknowledged to God that you're going to place your faith in Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior, let's settle that right here, right now. In this moment, you pray something like this. God, I know I'm a sinner. I admit it. I thank you that Jesus Christ died for a sinner like me. And right now, I'm placing all of my faith in him to be my Savior. If you're a believer here today, look at the world. These are exciting times. The coming of the Lord draws nigh. If you are involved in things that are wrong or sinful, get out of them now. Pursue righteousness because you're soon to face the Savior. Father, we pray that you will give us all a sense of thy soon appearing to rapture the church. I pray that you would do a personal work of righteous resolve in every single believer. I pray, Lord, that when you come back and rapture us, we'll not be taken in evil or wrong, but we will be seen in righteousness and truth. For anything that you've accomplished here today, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.